Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End Insight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Before we get started, I want to do some quick shameless self-promotion. Back at an event in September, my husband and I both told parallel stories about my chronic illness and our first year of marriage. I talk a lot about intimacy and the Dead Bedroom subreddit, which got way more laughs than I was expecting, and he talks a lot about how he thought he was going to lose me and what that felt like for him. You can hear both of these stories on the latest episode of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast, which I wholeheartedly recommend in general and also used to be a part of. Today, I'm talking to John about Fabre's disease and bipolar disorder. During the hour that we talked, so much of what he said resonated with me, and I ended up copying and pasting about a million of his quotes to Twitter while I was editing the transcript, so I hope you enjoy this one. As a quick content note, we briefly discussed the intersection of pain and suicidal ideation, but it's more of a general conversation than a specific story. So if you hop forward about 10 seconds when we talk, start talking about the pain scale, then you should be past it. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So I, I can tell you that like I am always super self-conscious because like I do look like someone who is outwardly fit mm-hmm. um, because like my illnesses aren't like you can't see a crippling disfigurement totally. or something. Uh, and I do like make an active effort to exercise because it's something that's really important for me staying healthy. Yeah. So I guess I'll just like to start it. That's one of those things where like I do feel like uh, when I've been interviewed at places, they assume that I'm abled, mm-hmm. which is like convenient, but also kind of frustrating. So, right. Uh, yeah, that's one part of it. But um, I am, so I was not, I guess the first question is, was, was I healthy as a kid? Yes, right? exactly. Uh, for me, the answer would be no, because uh, I have a thing called a Fabre's disease. Okay. It's a genetic disease. And um, it was undiagnosed in my grandmother and my mom uh, and my uncle. It's an X-linked recessive disease. Okay. So it follows like the women are considered carriers, uh, which is a whole other thing to unwrap, which is like kind of inaccurate. But so it was uh, undiagnosed until after I was born and then uh, my grandmother, my mother, my uncle, and I all started getting treated uh, by a uh, synthetic enzyme replacement therapy. Uh, so this enzyme is grown by a company called Genzyme uh, in Boston and they pioneered this technique where they used uh, bacteria to a like yeast to genetically edited yeast to create this correctly folded protein and they sell it for an exorbitant sum of money. Sure. And, uh, it costs, um, like roughly $300,000 a year to my insurance. Uh, (laughs) I'm so constantly amazed by that exact thing. What people need to live. The exact number, uh, this year is 288 K. Wow. Yeah. 
And so, so, so when did you start treatment or even so I started, when did I started you know you needed it? For that, uh, I got, I went to the NIH when I was eight years old and I stayed in the Ronald McDonald outpatient center mm-hmm. and, uh, I was sharing a facility with people who had like a hundred tumors in their lungs and it was December and some of these kids weren't going to see it to Christmas. Mm-hmm. So that was at eight years old. And then uh, when I was 12, I got started on the synthetic enzyme replacement therapy after this study was completed. And uh, I was out of school once every two weeks, um, basically from then on um, until about uh, high school when I started getting home infusion on the weekend. Okay. And Um, so up until... So up until you're eight, which is when you went to the clinic, you, I'm guessing, had been symptomatic because you said it wasn't diagnosed previously in your other family right. members. So it's a uh, it's a lysosomal storage disorder, which means that there's a I'm missing an enzyme in my blood that is responsible for uh, breaking down uh, a particular lipid um, in my bloodstream. Okay, and that lipid accumulates over time. So presentationally, uh, the disease actually only starts uh, really showing serious symptoms by like 25 to 30. So it's like a buildup in that way. Yeah. Uh, my 25th birthday was in June. And I can tell you that, yes, it does start to come out when you're 25 to 30. Uh, it's uh, characterized specifically by uh, neuropathy, uh, very similar to fibromyalgia and uh, some indicators of reduced kidney function um, and a variety of other things that may or may not be uh, the disease, but it's very hard to actually, because it's multi-organ, multi-symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into the unpacking all of, like the psychological aspects of that, but um, it's very hard to be like, am I hurting today because I drank too much or because I just am like sick and so right. uh last year i was also diagnosed with uh bipolar disorder so i have that i have uh two herniated discs in my back that may or may not be related to the febreze disease mm-hmm. and i have febreze disease and i'm in tech so <laughs> that's kind of the lay of the land okay okay so Okay, got it. So missing an enzyme, and then you start getting infusions at 12. Is that right? Yep. And was that treatment newer at the time? It sounds like. Yeah, it was brand new. Okay. So for the other people in your family, if they had been diagnosed earlier, it might not have made a big difference. Uh, it may. There was plenty of misdiagnosis. So uh, just because there wasn't a treatment doesn't mean that a lot of heartache couldn't have been saved. By- oh, Totally properly diagnosing no i 100 percent agree and so genzyme this company that made the drug actually uh they got a virus in their bacteria containers oh god that uh caused them to have to uh purge all of their facilities and deep clean them to eliminate the virus and so about for for two years in uh, the early 2010s uh, the supply was seriously decreased and they were, there was a class action lawsuit 
and yeah, it was a it was a snafu. Oh my god, but, I I can't. I assume then, so it's pretty new. So they must have a patent, and no one else can even. Yeah. No one can compete well, with them right now. No one can compete with them. Uh, but this did actually, I think, influence the FDA's decision to fast track another study. Um, and this drug just got approved, which may be really life changing for me. Um, I'm actually going to see my doctor on the 30th because it's a uh, it's a pill form where they use a chaperone protein to uh, correctly fold the enzyme that was misfolded in the first place. And it's only available to a certain percentage of phenotypes of the disease because the disease has multiple like different genetic markers that indicates the same underlying disease. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate enough to have uh, one of the better phenotypes in terms of enzyme activity. Um, so it's, it is a spectrum. And from what I've read, uh, there are other people who have it much worse than me, but uh, that's something to never tell someone who's chronically ill. No, <laughs> it doesn't really work like that, does it? Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It is hard because uh, I do think there is always like a uh, a guilt associated with just wanting to feel like. Um, especially with like the bipolar disorder that came up this year, I do feel like my life is like I'm playing on hard mode sometimes. And that although uh, like it, it, it is hard to avoid the toxic like a aspects of comparison, yeah. especially like in my personal life, because like if my girlfriend's kind of being a weenie, like I can get kind of frustrated with that because I live with such like high levels of chronic pain um <laughs> but i'm not like it's not something i'm proud of but it just makes it like the zen me always wants to be like oh your pain is valid as well but it is super easy to like as soon as things become hard you just want to be like rub some dirt on it i have this genetic condition and i don't complain about it yeah but... i think sometimes it like it can be a really big empathy builder to have chronic pain but it also can kind of zap your empathy when yeah they're just they're exactly some, as you describe like mornings especially i'm just like i, I just want to be like don't don't talk to me like <laughs> I, I just need two hours to get i've noticed like getting caffeinated for whatever reason uh seems to like help me ignore the pain a little bit yeah um it's it's hard like i, I use gabapentin um that helps with the back pain a lot more than anything but um, I do think it influences, like, I, I probably smoke more weed than I should because I'm in pain and it helps, but it at helps the same with time, nerve like, pain so much. Yeah. Um, like it, that there's stigma around that. So like you can go to a, uh, you can go to pain management centers and they'll prescribe you tramadol. And I am an addict in the sense that if you gave me tramadol, I would enjoy it far too much. And I prefer doing this. Like it's, 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 I feel like it's safer. Um, it has its own side effects for sure. And I don't consider it, I don't think it's medicine. Like but some people call it medicine and I just like, medicine shouldn't have this many side effects. <laughs> like, like cognitively? Really, yeah, like cognitively and also just like, munchies 
Yeah. Like, I don't, I think it would be like when someone uh, prescribes weed for medical marijuana, it's like maybe they're, they're a chemo patient and they need the munchies mm-hmm. and maybe there's someone with nerve pain and they need the nerve pain relief. But a medicine would just do that one thing rather than six things all at the same time. I don't need weed for the uh, appetite related aspects of it. Like I already already have a fantastic appetite, you know? So it is frustrating to feel like uh, there are healthier alternatives that aren't getting researched into um, because there are just a lot of people who just don't have the problem. And have you, do you run experiments on yourself at all? Like, I mean, a little bit, it sounds like. So you have different things that you're trying. I'm sure. I've tried the CBD sort of craze and it does not help with the nerve pain. Mm -hmm. It helps with anxiety a lot, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. But um, I haven't found anything that's helped. Like, because there's this, there's this fascial pain that I get in my hands and, uh, like just mostly my forearms and my hands where like, I really just wish my hands were not connected to my body. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there it's, it doesn't seem fair. Cause like, I really can't predict what days it's going to happen and what days I'm going to feel great, which is really like psychologically taxing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, I'm downloading, like I, I bought dragon. Oh um, yeah. The voice voice to text voice to text because uh my hands like i'm a programmer so i'm trying to figure out like a way to write code with voice to text that's a Um, good question it's there aren't a lot of good resources into it like it seems like everyone has just kind of built their like hacky scripts on top of uh a thing called talon okay but like it's not super like built out yeah and there is like a implicit like hypocrisy of mine too, which is like, I'm a front end developer and I don't know shit about accessibility, which like I, I really should. But at the same time, like there's so much, I, I don't know about you, but like adulting is pretty hard for me. And uh, like, there's so much on my plate that I'm just kind of like trying to keep track of everything that's going on and not like, I can't, I can't go off and like study something for four hours after work because I'm just wiped yeah. afterwards. And my priorities just like, don't lie in like studying four hours. There's after not like space walking my dog or going to the gym. Like all of these things that are actually far more important. Yeah. For your health and mental health. Professional advancement, but And so can I, I want to rewind a little bit again, since you're talking about work. So it sounds like this has been, you've known about it for a long time, but it's been changing over time in terms of the pain and stuff. So how did it impact school? And besides, so you were missing it to get treatment. um, But then kind of what happened after that? How was it, what was it like going into the work world? So in, I, I think I've been blessed by being a programmer because uh, it does support remote work. And if I get my work done, they don't care if I like, have a nurse coming to infuse my, like, and just work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm 
I think actually uh, the bipolar disorder has affected work way more. Um, yeah. That that I'm. Uh, that came up, so I took an antidepressant, um, in like June of last year. Okay. And, uh, if you take it like an SSRI with bipolar disorder, it like, uh, basically unlocks the mania that you have and, okay. uh, the impulse control issues associated with that, um, were super serious. I, uh, I went on a conference and I got like really pumped up just being around a lot of like really smart people and then through like a comedy of errors i just ended up not sleeping for about three days Oof. and then after that i couldn't sleep mm -hmm. and i went to upstate new york and didn't sleep for four days had to go so that's seven days total and i basically lost my mind yeah i i had to be hospitalized multiple times and I got. I had to come down to Austin, which is where I was working, and then be rehospitalized because the medication that they put me on in New York was way too strong, um, and not the appropriate medic medication for me to be on. So that took. An, I had to take a month off of work, and then I came back and I was still partially symptomatic, mm -hmm. and it took me about two more months to really. It, no, it took about four months because I got put on some bad antipsychotic medication that made me gain 30 pounds wow. in a month, mm -hmm. which is like insane. I just exploded. And then I uh, I got on lithium, which has been great, but I lost my job during that time. Mm -hmm. And I was probably going to lose my job to begin with because uh, I got laid off with like 35 people. But um, right that wasn't really helpful for my mental state. So that was like a big setback and mm -hmm. really getting like to the point where uh, I just finished my first book since that manic episode last week. Okay. Which is like the hardest thing coming back from one of these uh, manic episodes is like your ability to focus and not be constantly just jumping from thing to thing mm -hmm. and being able to slow down and reading is probably like the hardest thing you could do. Mm -hmm. coming back from one of those things and, and uh yeah it really screwed up my professional career yeah yeah no the timeline on that sounds really tough and so before that so that was matt like 14 or 15 months ago right yeah um you said you were on an ssri so you had been put on that obviously not being aware of it like you've right. gone in so for some I, mental I health no awareness that i was actually bipolar i just like knew that there was something up and I was, I had anxiety. I had this chronic pain and I have had, I, I had been depressed, but I got on this, uh, SSRI called Abilify. And, uh, that was actually, it was the first time I never had that chronic pain. Oh, really? From the Fabry's disease. And it was like, I was euphoric because I wasn't in pain. So that, Right. added to my mania right and it was just it was a train wreck well but... and i can imagine so in my own experience which is not the same but in my experience on the the pain and mental health side is 
kind of what you said earlier is just it can be really difficult when you don't want to get out of bed in the morning to distinguish between my body is just aching and I am hurting and I am exhausted because I'm sick and my this sickness is making my mental health nosedive and that's making it really different difficult kind of emotionally to get out of bed and I'm so I can only imagine what the flip side would feel like of like this thing that I've been feeling every day maybe for a decade is gone that by itself would be really disorienting it it was like uh the Flater on the roof, like wonder of wonder, miracles. <laughs> like I was, I was just, I was running around. I was like, I was successfully dating for the first time in a really long time. Like it just, it bled into everything else. And then, uh, yeah, it, it just, it wasn't maintainable because, uh, like I had the delusions of grandeur and the uh, manic spending and all these things, like that were just. It, it, it's weird too because it's it, I was still me yeah and people like forget about that I think a lot of people don't really actually have like the emotional machinery to understand what it's like to have like a mental health crisis mm-hmm. it's not like you suddenly turn into someone else right. but at the same time I did things like at the at the end of it it was it was really bad and it I wouldn't want anyone to have seen me like that. Right. Yeah. There are people who move, uh, like change cities after a manic episode and stuff because it's so mortifying what they did. Right. In order to just start fresh, which would also be, is also really difficult. (laughs) Yeah. And at the same time, I like, I've gotten to a point now where after going to therapy and all this stuff, uh, I do feel like I have a better understanding of who I am. Uh, had, versus had I like not gone through this, I think there were a lot of latent issues. Uh, I I think I can look back and see myself having done bipolar things that I recovered from mm-hmm. in the past. Right. And now that I'm able to get treatment, the flaws that I had before my episode can be worked on in a way that lets me like uh, direct the energy from bipolar in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, it can't like, I, I, I have a strong ability to hyper-focus when I'm like interested in something. Yeah. And I, I do think that comes from the bipolar. Um, I like, I, if I can meter that in a way where I'm not staying up till like midnight working on something, um, right. that's the, the good thing. And I think having a, a good partner um is really crucial in that and really lucky to have one so um there yeah that's that's i'm just rambling no it's okay it's good it's all interesting um it did make me think of a question though for kind of everything because i think about this with pain too i think it's really interesting and also difficult with chronic conditions so diagnoses in general to pull a to separate what is your personality and what is a condition of your biochemistry, basically. Yeah. Like you could, you could get really nihilist about it and just think that everything is just like emergent phenomenon from neurochemical impulses and no one's unique. And we're all just, uh, 
I, I, I don't think that's actually like, I, the, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's like sometimes you look at the moon, uh, and you're like, oh, the stars are amazing. And then sometimes you look at the moon and you're like, I really need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Right. It's all and fine. both of those things are like okay. Yeah. And sometimes you just need to be like, this fucking sucks. And sometimes you can be, you can, you can get into the mindset where this is, I'm not my body. Mm-hmm. And this is just, this will pass, but yeah. both are valid. And I think that's like one of those, that's one of the mysteries, of the human experience, right? Yeah. And I think it like, for me, it mostly just comes up with negative self-talk of being like, well, I spent a lot of time being like, oh, I'm just really lazy. Like I'm just a lazy person. And then one day, yeah. you know, and that as- doesn't do it. That doesn't serve any purpose. No. Like when you, when you bring yourself down like that, yeah. you're not, you're not actually addressing like what is something I can do to fix, mm-hmm. make it better? You're just being like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. And then you just watch another six episodes of Netflix. Yeah. And cycle. that's not, that's not useful. No. Yeah. But it's also like getting the information about why. So lazy might be the wrong word if actually you have pain and fatigue. But once you realize and you can identify those things like, oh, some days my body is miserable. And yeah. all of a sudden I have really different information about how I can go out and like take care of my body basically i do think that uh like i we do have like a higher standard that we have to adhere to if we want to feel good yeah like what does that look like for you well that's a frustrating thing is like uh i i'm not following these rules myself like i can i can say what they are and then i'm also human so i'm like drinking beer but like avoiding alcohol seems to be generally a very good thing Mm -hmm. in terms of like reducing inflammatory responses and stuff god there's so many (laughs) flies in me okay uh and i guess working out consistently um drinking lots of water uh trying to avoid like high sugar um these sort of things that are just like everything in moderation trying to like have leafy greens and like a balanced diet um sleeping uh more than you think you might need mm-hmm. and uh yeah I, oh did you get I it, did it. <laughs> yes <laughs> fantastic uh i guess uh like you said too i think one thing that's really important for me is uh when I'm lying in bed some days and I'm like, I'm really not feeling well, I, I kind of just, I, I take an L and I say, yep, today isn't going to be a good day. And uh, not really getting myself too down for it and not saying that I'm lazy or that I'm less than, but it's just like today isn't going to happen. And I'm really fortunate to have a, a job that kind of lets me just work from home and I can kind of just like lays back and not really focus on all those presentational aspects that make it so difficult. Like, I think the worst is when you're in a ton of pain and you're like getting dressed to go to work and you're like, I really don't want to be there right now. And uh, I'm, I'm really blessed and I'm a little worried because I'm, uh, I'm applying for new jobs because I really don't like my current job <laughs> for like a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, and I'm worried that like it, it will be a trade off having to go co-locate somewhere because uh, working from home is really good for being differently abled or whatever. 
yeah. I have a question. So are you yourself, uh, do you deal with disabilities uh, at all? Yeah. So, so my, I realize some people come in knowing my full backstory and then some people don't, but so my health situation is basically like, I, it depends on which doctor I want to go with. So I could be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, but when I started to get a lot of nerve pain, it coincided with a toxic mold like infestation in my house, in my house. Um, but I've tested positive for a bunch of tick-borne illnesses. So basically, I think so I have a compromised immune have system. No idea. Yeah. Like yeah. I have a compromised <laughs> immune system. I've had low energy my entire life. Um, and maybe two years ago, things started to really tank. So, and I'm 31. So in my 20s, I was like always kind of more tired than the people around me. Um, and I've always had like swollen lymph nodes when I don't sleep well. Uh, but I never, like I worked, I, I actually wrote about this for Natasha's project. Like I just, I had a really flexible job and it was great. And once I right. got a job that wasn't flexible anymore, which was about three years ago now, like my health tanked very, very quickly. So as soon as I started going to a frankly easy nine to five job and it was in the middle of some other stuff, but like things started to decline and I was crashing as soon as I got home from work. And then I, uh, right. I had like six months after that was when I started to experience nerve pain for the first time, which I didn't even know what to call it. I couldn't explain it. I was like, I feel like I'm bruised, but everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like, honestly, like I want to take a butcher's knife to all of my joints. Yeah. I just want to like chop them off. I, Cause I like, I can, when I like punch something or like squeeze my hands, it feels better than the baseline. Yeah. Like, when I inflict pain, it actually feels like a relief from that yeah. nerve pain. So I think there's something, this is something that I should look up if I'm going to talk about it, but pain has a gateway mechanism. So like we're only physically capable of feeling one pain at a time. And so when you like do something that is acute, it will override your sensation of any other pain. But obviously it's not like there's not a long term version of that. Like, yeah, because it just makes you wonder, like, what what sort of research maybe there are going to be some medical advances in the next like 20 years that could really figure some things out here. Yeah. Because opioids definitely aren't the solution. Right, right. And especially it's so hard right now because there are plenty of people who do live successfully without ever having to change their dose and, like, it manages pain. And then there are people – I mean, like you saying you don't even want to go there. I think there are plenty of people who are like, this isn't the thing for me. So we need other things. Right. Um. And nerve yeah. pain is tough. I think I'm interested to hear more about your like versions or what accommodation might look like for you because I totally resonate with the flexibility thing. And I also, I normally have nerve pain in my legs, but last year with a toxic mold thing, I had it in my forearms and it was, I couldn't type. Like I didn't use my computer for four or five months because typing was so uncomfortable. Just right. that movement, like whatever it was. I, I, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I... I, I I can't imagine it being significantly worse because if if it was worse, I would just like I'm I'm getting prepared. That's that's mm-hmm. like since it's degenerative, I'm trying to prepare for in the eventuality that I won't be able to use my hands. Mm-hmm. I still need to have a job, you know. Yeah, yeah, and what that looks like. Um, yeah. 
And so you're looking at voice to text, probably probably to just ease off your hands too. Right. Exactly. Um, it's it's not exactly super user friendly, but it's I not think what it's, designed it's one for. of these things where I got a new headset too because for the same reason, uh, I had like a the QC thirty fives don't really like pick up speech well, mm. so I'm hoping uh, this will improve things too. But uh, like there's a machine learning aspect to it; you have to like give it plenty of data to train with. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic that it will get better, but yeah, yeah, it's a uh, I guess in terms of of other accommodations, like I, I guess my dream job is a place that's uh, kind of expecting me to work remote like two days a week, and then uh, three days a week I come into the office. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like abhor open office designs, as like I'm sure all of my programmer brethren do as well um so it's just one of these things where if i'm going to come to the office it's because i'm going to be actively collaborating on everything right and if i'm working from home it's because i'm going to be heads down on crushing bugs yeah (sighs) yeah um i like dog friendly offices because my dog wallace uh is like my pride and joy and he makes me feel good when I'm not feeling great yeah that's great and it's not like it's one of those things like I'm not gonna get him to be like an emotional support dog because like there are people who actually have like PTSD or something Mm -hmm. but I'm just like I just miss my dog when I go to work and he can't come yeah (laughs) Uh, I don't know if there are any other major accommodations um the one thing I got really frustrated with, and this is just a small story, is uh, like I had an interview with Microsoft, and I was I it didn't really go super well. It wasn't super well organized, and I was uh, leaving the office, and this guy like needed to walk and talk with me because things were running late, and he told me that I wasn't going to get the job, and I should go back and study CS fi- fundamentals. I've written 14 compilers in my spare time. Dot 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 was the like the takeaway was I was I was supposed to try harder because he did all of this work in his spare time, and it was I really felt looked down on as being lazy, mm-hmm. um, and it really like I I'm not lazy I have chronic illness and I'm trying to do the best from like I'm not trying to push myself too hard because I don't want to throw myself into a bipolar like tailspin and I also don't want to hurt my hands and have it be even worse to type so it's like it's one of these things where I just really felt like I was told by this abled person how to go about living assuming that I was abled and it was just really frustrating yeah and also the like sort of spoken but this unspoken expectation that you should be working your regular job and then also working your second free job which i think is really common for programmers yeah like which i've already i've contributed at least a thousand hours to open source and i'm supposed to like just keep doing more yeah and I'm like like when does it end you know <laughs> like i just i just want to get a job like i deserve a good job i'm good at what i do and it's it's frustrating to have to like 
jump through these ridiculous hoops sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Turning something that that is it's like health privilege is a term that right. we don't use as much as maybe we should all start doing or could all start doing. Yeah. Of like, like assuming it, you as, have free productive time. And the all these jobs that are like, oh, are you okay with contra- contract to hire? And it's like, usually these contract jobs don't provide health care. Yeah. And if they do, it has to be great health care because if I'm paying, if the deductible is $12,000, I'm going to cover a $12,000 deductible in the first month. Right. I, f- for some reason, I think because we jumped around from the cost of your medication, um, insurance so you must have been constantly insured forever although if you're under 26 so, you could theoretically I'm under be 26 thanks obama yeah i am on my dad's my dad's a software engineer at facebook and i'm on his healthcare. gotcha <laughs> okay as soon as i turn 26 uh i'm right kind of yeah like on a raft just like floating trying to find some company that's going to save me. Right. Just a cool $300,000 a year. Yeah. Well, and that's one of these things where, uh, have you seen this? Okay. Cupid study. Um, I went to the SciPy in 2016 and they gave this study that showed, they showed the questions and they actually showed the data associated with the people who answered the questions. Like the actual, uh, like the, one of the questions was, uh, do you use drugs? And it was yes, no, refused to answer. And they effectively mapped that all of the people who chose refused to answer were actually saying yes, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to admit it. Yeah. And in these are you disabled questions, it's are you disabled? Yes, no, choose to not answer. Right. And if you choose to not answer, a malicious actor could totally take that and say, okay, this person's probably disabled. Let's reject them. And I think we have a little bit of a, uh, like we, it, it could never happen here. This sort of mentality of, oh, well, it says on this sheet that we can't use this data to, to fire someone, but there's actually like usually zero oversight into the people who are responsible there. And as soon as like we have another depression, the first people that are going to go are the disabled people. And that's like the, the harsh reality. Like if, unless there's actual serious legal uh, oversight and protections in place, I'm always going to put no. Right. Cause that's just like that. It only exists to hurt you. Yeah. It does not exist to help you. Right. Yeah. It's, it's super difficult when you're disclosing something that certainly feels like, this not that it makes me a worse employee, but it makes me an employee that may be more expensive to hire, or like probably right. will be more expensive to hire. Yeah. Even yep. if I <laughs> can provide value, which I think that I can, but. Um, right. You just have to hope that they're participating in an insurance plan that has a cost that's amortized, like as high enough as like okay, if if you're working for Microsoft, right, then. You're just a, a drop in the bucket, but yeah. if you're working for a, a startup that has a plan for a hundred people, you're probably not a drop in the bucket. You're probably like 10% of the healthcare costs for a company with a hundred thousand people or a hundred people. Sorry. Right. Yeah. No, a small company in order to insure yeah. you insurance. Oh, that's so hard. 
the insurance and medication costs. And so what I'm jumping, we're jumping around so much, but I yeah, just yeah. realized. So with the, with the medication, what difference since you have relatives who started taking it so much later in life? Do you know what that has been like? You don't know. It's like, how do you test against? So I, they started me on the study uh, before I was ever presenting lower kidney function or yeah. accumulation of plaque on my heart. You were like, which are like normal. asymptomatic. I'm or asymptomatic. Those aren't even symptoms. Those are just, yeah. I mean, I guess they well, are, but you don't feel them. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, this drug doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. Okay. So uh, there's a reasonable expectation that it's not going to help neuropathy. And uh, really, the symptoms have only gotten bad in the last year, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had, I was always, I always felt like I was sore after workouts um, than other people, but I had like not really a lot of ability to validate that. But now I'm right. getting to the point where I have like spurious pain in a way that's uh, really professionally problematic. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. It's certainly, it's impacting other parts of your life. Um, right. In a way that maybe it didn't before that. It just felt like you were getting medication and that was the impact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bodies. I think that is also a really interesting thing of, and this also relates to mental health. Like you say, you always felt like you maybe hurt more after workouts, but there's no way to know. I think this, this feature of we can't actually, we don't have the tools to compare our own body experiences with other people's body experiences. Yeah. Or what it would even be like to be conscious as another being. Right. Yeah. It's like, you just can't know what someone means when they say that they're in pain or what someone means when they say they're tired. Right. And yeah, I, I do think it's unfortunate too, because there's this, like, I, I think the nuance that you're uh, touching on is related to the fact that there is some sort of empirical scale of pain. And within reason, you should give everyone the benefit of the doubt and not try to induce comparison. But someone who's like a nurse and is triaging wounds is clearly going to see the person with a broken femur and treat them over someone with like a bruised pinky toe, right? Yeah. So there's clearly like a an actual scale somewhere. And I think it can be really problematic to induce these numbers sometimes because it's, it's usually, it's not, it's not like a uh, number system as much as it's like a high, medium, low. I don't know. Like I, well, there's like directions too. There's pain that makes you want to kill yourself. And then there's everything else. Right. And uh, if you're in a level of pain that is making you like suicidal, then that needs to be addressed. And it's not worth like mincing hairs over or like splitting hairs over how much pain that is. If it's an eight. If it's an eight or a 10, like regardless if a person, person is making a decision to like seek ending their life over pain, mm-hmm. that's when you should like, Okay, that's the highest. <laughs> yeah. And that's like the timeline can also matter. So if you whatever a 6 feels like to you, if you feel like a 6, but you felt like a 6 for 5 years, that's pretty different than feeling like a 10 for 20 minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's so that's also a 
this is kind of related, but it's also just kind of a rant. It's, I get a, I get really frustrated by people who are, say stuff like, oh, well, at least it's not cancer. And people with cancer, the, the attitude is usually like, you're going to beat this. And sometimes they do. And I don't have the opportunity to ever beat my disease. Right. Unless maybe there's like gene therapy uh, coming down the window, but I'm not like crossing my fingers for that. The The best I can do is live with my disease. And I'm sure it sounds like you're in the same boat. And it's so frustrating to, to hear that sort of like, yes, they, the trials and tribulations of cancer sound far worse than what I go through. But at the same time, I've been, I, I've been doing this since I was eight. Right. And I've, I've had to deal with all of the questions I've, like when I was in school, I would always tell people this extremely personal thing that I was, I had this disease and then people would forget yeah. and have to re-explain it. And it was so like, it was so hurtful and psychologically taxing to have to deal with all of that. Uh, I don't think it's fair to ever compare the two just because they're so, it's so different living with chronic illness than living with something that you like get diagnosed with when you're 45, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, I now, so I've talked to, I think at least 10 people for this. Um, and I want to say this comparison with cancer has actually come up a lot and in different ways. And I really, really like the way you put it, but there's something about the space that cancer takes up in our cultural consciousness and the narratives that it gets which I think is part of what you're alluding to. It's like there's so many movies about it and we just really understand it as a culture. Like we know about it and we don't know about chronic illness. Like that you could tell somebody and that they could forget or they don't know the right thing to say and so they yeah. don't. It's like cancer could happen to anyone, but chronic illness is because you're genetically inferior. Yeah. And that's like, it's like, it's almost like uh, when people say stuff like drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Like your, your genetic inferiority in cancer is just more random. Yeah. It's yeah. just a random mutation for the most part. Like that's how cancer comes, right? Like that's right. always how cancer comes. Like, you're just is. the first one with your mutation. Like that doesn't make you like less deserving mm -hmm. of it. But I feel like there is a sentiment towards like, oh, if you have a pre-existing condition, your parents shouldn't have had you. If it's genetic. Yeah, if they're carriers. There's like a eugenic, yeah. secret eugenic. Yeah. There is like a weird sort of implicit eugenics to like the, the way the narrative is framed around chronic illness versus cancer. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And especially right now. So this won't be released for at least a few weeks. But at this exact time before the midterms, the question of, of, um, of pre-existing conditions is in the news again. Right. Just and that's like, like uh, that's another thing like uh whenever this is comes up it it feels like i'm i may make like a post on facebook or a post on twitter to do something but i'm not doing nearly as much as i could to 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 like i've campaigned for beto a little bit but like that's pretty much it mm -hmm. and these having this disease makes induce like m more guilt about all the things that I could be doing to help myself out. Right. But I'm not because I'm just trying to tread water. 
Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard when like your this feature of your existence or your identity becomes political basically or like it is made to be political by the discourse which isn't i just don't understand why socialism has become a dirty word (laughs) yeah like if chances are if you think like being socially nice to another person is a bad thing i don't i don't i don't want to interact with you yeah that's not it's not great and it doesn't feel good when you're like i definitely am one of the people who needs to be taken care of but i can contribute in other ways I had a pharmacist in California who was had prepared my drug say that there is no way he deserves to pay for my illness and uh, that I should be on Medicare Part B and paying 80% out of pocket. Great. Thank you for your opinion. Guess, guess what party he voted with. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. Okay. I have a lot there of our opinions some people about who that. are just like really awful. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's no, I, I just hope that more than 51% of people decide to be okay. Yeah. As far as these things go. Okay. So yeah. then that little pharmaceutical story yeah. brings me to my, I think last like question or series of questions, which is what has your experience been with the medical community in general? Oh, I have a great story about this. Um, <laughs> So first of all, uh, doctors are basically like 50, 50 in my experience of like half of the time, uh, they'll just pretend to know what Fabre's disease is. And, uh, some of them do and are very interested. Uh, the ones who clearly actually have heard of the disease before are very interested because it's very rare. Um, the most direct connections I have with are with uh, nurses mm-hmm. and I've had a variety of nurses in my life and I've been become like personal friends with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a patient care representative um, through Genzyme who's extremely helpful with like handling insurance issues huh. uh, because they, they provide a lot of services to ensure that people are actually getting the drug because they're charging the insurance company so much for it. Right. They have a strong capitalistic incentive to help us out as much as possible. Yeah. Um, sp- on that note, I, uh, I had moved from California and had to get an infusion in Washington and uh, since I'd left California, my Californian doctor couldn't legally sign an authorization for me to receive drugs in Washington. So I had to get seen and it was kind of last minute. And uh, there was a doctor, Dr. Ronald Scott at the University of Washington, oh, who I really don't like, <laughs> um, uh, who was on the Genzyme like, advisory board and is the head of the... Uh, children's clinic at university of washington and i called their office because he was the doctor i'd seen before i was living in california and i asked to get seen because i needed to get my uh my iv like prescription signed and they said it was going to be a month before i could get seen 
and I called my patient care representative who was from Genzyme and said like, hey, I need this to be fixed. She calls Dr. Scott directly and I'm seen the day of. You're like, okay. It's money, it's straight up money talks in this industry. Yeah. And Genzyme, has, they care more about satisfying the drug companies than they do the patients. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's broken. And uh, these, there's like these hegemonical structures inside of medicine that really, uh, like there's a huge patriarchy with related to medicine and pharmaceuticals that kind of prevents progress because like there are some really incompetent people at the top. Um, but all in all, I, I guess the other interaction I had was with the outage of that drug back in like 2012. Right, but uh, my general interactions have mostly been very positive. Um, most people are very understanding. Yeah. In um, pretty much all of my issues, um, I'm very open about my mental health issues right. with like the coworkers that I like and everything. I don't consider it's like a something I'll, I'll tell you if it comes up, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be something where I'm going to like announce it in front of a crowd. Yeah, but uh, it's like I just own it, and uh, people seem to respect that. Yeah, it's a the medical industry is just like the insurance companies exist to to not pay out claims. Right, and I could rant about that a little bit. Um, <laughs> they like it seems like these large insurance companies have these various like sub departments that all have a bad job at communicating with each other and then they will call you through a proxy you can't call them back right so like and (laughs) everything is like oh i forgot this step so you have to go back and fill this part and i think they just like that i think upper level management and insurance companies specifically hires people who are not good at their jobs so that they can like just attribute uh, this willful malice to incompetence because they're not actually there. It is not in their interest to train their employees how to be good at their job. Like how to resolve problems for patients. Right. You are like, I'm in, like, if I have to directly interface with the insurance person, I have to be responsible for every single step and have every item notarized. And when I'm dealing with other issues, like that's the first thing that I'm going to like not do because I hate filling out paperwork. It is the bane of my existence and they get me every time by asking me to fill out some paperwork. Like on a technicality or just doing it. Yeah. Just doing it. It's really like I, I have, I'm, I'm not a good person all the time. And I just like, I don't do these things that I should do. But it's like, how how do you fix that? I don't know. How do you get better at bureaucracy? Right, and like, how do you? It's how do you get better at like checking off all the adulting things on your to do list? Like, I'm 25. Like, I don't want to have to deal with all these things already, and I, I do. So it's just like, yeah. it's frustrating, and I'll get to it sometime, but probably not tonight. I think that's okay. I think that's like letting yourself off the hook. Yeah, I think uh, it, the this is just getting to stuff that's not really about, like, it's just 
general human stuff, but uh, like just keeping a to-do list where you have like three small things rather than like, I think the easiest thing to let yourself do nothing is to like write down all of the different things you need to do because then you're just going to do nothing because you see like the immensity of the list. Yeah, the overwhelm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't... I am yeah. like very deep in letting myself off the hook mode right now still, but sometimes think, you just gotta. Yeah. It, um, I, I can't speak for myself too much, um, but I can say like um, my mother and my grandmother's experience is markedly different than mine because uh, male doctors, which are like most doctors, um, have a habit of uh, diminishing the complaints of women. And um, if you go to these like disability communities, you'll often see that that's the case across the board and that like, oh, if you're a woman, then you're just hysterical. And if you're a man, then like suddenly all of your pain is validated. Yeah. So I think that's I've definitely also... heard about that secondhand. But... Yeah. Yeah. And in your own family. I think that's yeah. also a really interesting piece of your story that because they identified the genetic like cause of this before you were symptomatic, it would automatically give you credibility with doctors in a way where I can only imagine, say, your mom or your grandma going right. to the doctor and trying to describe it. And they're like, honestly, no. like I'd, I'd, I'd rather be in my situation where like I, I know what I have versus being in your situation where it's still clearly in flux that they like don't really know what's wrong with you. And just yeah. have like a sort of an idea. Like it's nice to be able to do like a genetic test and show that this is my my yeah. bad thing that's going on. Yeah. And do you feel okay, I do have one more set of questions and then we can wrap up. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. and do you feel it sounds like because of the way that you found out on the way that you've been adopting, how does that impact your mental health in the present? So for a lot of people, like yeah, I need to think more about this question. But for a lot of people, it's like they'll start to show symptoms first and then they'll find out what's going on. And there's like a grieving process of what you thought that maybe your life was going to be like. Um, right. And how how has that looked for you? Uh, well, I've been living it for like the last uh, seven years or so. Mm -hmm. um, like my body's just been like slowly falling apart. And... Um, I think uh, I felt a lot of grief at the end of the manic episode. Um, yeah. That was something I had to deal with because uh, it's like you felt like you, I, f I felt like I lost a part of myself for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, I think the Fabre's disease has always just been one of these things where it was like, I know it's coming. Yeah. And it's kind of just been this sort of like, uh, for a long time, when I was I wasn't really super symptomatic, it was mostly just a reminder that I I, I was mortal. Yeah. Uh, like, and, but recently it's been more um, serious than that, and I've had to evaluate things like, uh, can I honestly say that it's a good idea to get married to me, and things like these. Because uh, I don't, I can't actually give a satisfying answer for how I'm going to be in 20 years. Yeah. On this current pace, it feels like I'm not going to be doing very well. So I don't, I have to come to terms with these sort of uh, more adult questions 
now that I'm starting to like the, it feels like the first derivative and the second derivative for my pain mm -hmm. are both like, it's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. The rate of change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I can't say that I, uh, yeah, I, I can't say that I like, I have any, uh, I, I, I think it's more of just like an acknowledgement that it's like, it's starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm optimistic that it's like a more of a, like it's a baseline that's going to last for a, a while. Yeah. That this is just going to be the worst that it gets and it's not going to get any worse. But I, I have no knowledge of whether or not that's actually true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that can be really hard for me to remember is that even recognizing like, okay, I'm chronically ill. And so I do know this one thing, like nobody knows when they say get married or have kids isn't for me is a question. Like nobody knows yeah. what's going to happen. And I, I am married. And right after I got married, like, I was, that was when I was the sickest that I've ever been. I was just like, congratulations. Right. Like, this is what our marriage looks like right now. Um, yeah. And like, that's never easy on a partner. Yeah. And I'm certainly lucky. Like my husband is super supportive and he is a good caretaker when needed, but you're like, okay, I need caretaking. Like I'm 30 and I need to be taken care of sometimes. And that's not everybody needs that but yeah it's also true that i don't know what the inside of a lot of people's relationships look like and some people have unmanaged mental health stuff that their partner is managing or some people have like other things are happening all the time yeah like at least your problems are codified right yeah so yeah. it's difficult to navigate but i that really super resonates with me as a question um I, thank you for asking it yeah it's there's no right answers that's for sure um i think we covered like the wide spectrum of things that i like to talk about has anything else just like come up for you or have you been thinking about any different kind of stuff while we've been talking uh it's okay I, if no I don't, I don't think so no i i think this has been wonderful and i'm i'm glad that i signed up to do this out of the blue awesome yeah thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me Thank you for listening to episode 11 of No End in Sight. I've definitely got enough stories recorded to see us through the new year, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if these stories have been resonating with you, then I would love to talk to you too. At this point, I've interviewed a lot of straight cis white women, and I'd particularly love to talk to people with other perspectives. You can get in touch by visiting noendinsight.co or by contacting me at BennisB on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget, I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's pretty small right now, but I'd love it to become a place where we share resources about building a business while prioritizing our health. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television, and I just started working on my winter patterns, so I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>